Welcome to the Market Urbanism Podcast. I'm your host, Nolan Gray, a writer for Market Urbanism and a graduate student in urban planning. My guests today are Samuel Zip and Nathan Storing, the editors of the wonderful new volume, Vital Little Plans, a collection of short works of Jane Jacobs. Samuel is a writer and historian, author of the award-winning Manhattan Projects, The Rise and Fall of Urban Renewal in Cold War New York. Sandy is also an associate professor of American Studies and Urban Studies at Brown University. Nathan is a writer, curator, and designer who specializes in making contemporary urban design, planning, and policy accessible to the general public. He has served as acting curator of Urban Space Gallery in Toronto and worked on permanent exhibits at the Chicago Architecture Foundation and the Boston Society of Architects. Sandy and Nate, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you. Before we jump into maybe a more chronological approach that you take in the book, um, we might want to set off some some broad themes. Early in the introduction, you kind of take on the ambitious task of drawing out common themes of Jacobs's work. Um, one of the concepts I hear a lot is radical centrism. You describe Jacobs's vision as one of markets without capitalism. That stood out to me. What do you mean by that idea, and and where do vital little plans fit in this vision? So I'll, I'll I'll take this. I think this is something that I sort of spearheaded. We wrote this introduction together, but that was one of the ideas that I think I brought to the table, which is to say that um, Jacobs is drawing on uh, sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously in her work uh, a long history of thinking about capitalism and its development. And um, that phrase, the way that I phrase that, comes from a particular philosopher who's written about uh, the problem of thinking about the relationship between markets and the development of capitalism. And um, that philosopher is Manuel de Landa, who has written a, a number of um, books about uh, the problems of thinking about networks in societies and thinking about uh, the ways that uh, uh, early market cultures uh, formed what he calls a meshwork of relationships in um, early uh, the early medieval ages. And he's also drawing on um, the historian Fernand Braudel. And he suggests that, that this is the tradition in some sense in which Jacobs is working and that her thinking about cities and her thinking Thinking about economies is is indebted to this work and indebted to thinking about um, how market relations, the the uh, truck exchange and barter uh, sort of ideal from Adam Smith, uh, can be uh, at the root of our thinking about uh, what is what is going on in, at the heart of urban life. And in some sense, we uh, wanted to try to understand that to both understand her within a larger tradition of urbanism and a larger tradition of historical thinking, but also to think about in some of the ways that she's uh, frankly a bit ahistorical in her thinking, um, in the sense that she uh, has a sort of idiosyncratic and um, perhaps unconventional take on the long history of the development of, of capitalist economies that doesn't always um, jive with other uh, accounts of it, whether from the left or from the right. Um, and so the vital little plans that she uh, suggests are at the heart of all city life, the economic plans, uh, all kinds of uh, people making their own little um, their own little plans for their lives are, are the kind of meshwork that will keep cities going. Um, and there's lots more to be said, which we can we can get into as we go along about the about the potentialities and some of the problems of that of that vision. Uh, one of the to maybe go back to the beginning. Uh, one of the elements of Jacobs's personality that comes out in her books is a, a deep skepticism of centralized power, um, academia, governments, uh, economic actors. 
one of the sections of the book where this really comes out early on is no virtue and meek conformity. Uh, the forward to the letter that I believe she sent to the loyalty security board interrogatory. Um, could you provide some context on that? What is going on at around this time? Why is she writing this letter? And and there's a lot about where she talks about her family and, and sort of this long tradition of standing up to, I guess, big players and conventional wisdom. Uh, what's going on there with that letter? Yeah, at that point, she um, she was serving as a, a propagandist, actually, for the for the U.S. government. <laughs> um, and this would have been in the, I believe this is already in the wake of World War II. She was writing for a magazine called America, which was distributed in the USSR. Um, and for a variety of reasons, she had um, raised some red flags with the FBI um, as a potential communist sympathizer, uh, partly because she was writing about uh, writing to the USSR. She had uh, tried to schedule a trip to the USSR, and uh, unfortunately, she also got a, um, a recommendation letter from Alger Hiss, um, who was under investigation at the time as well. Um, and so this was a response to uh, a series of questions that they sent her um, regarding her loyalty, essentially, to the U.S. And this, this I think, is just the uh, introduction that she, she uh, volunteered to include in her responses. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, important, it's important to note also that Jacobs had was an interesting in keeping with what you asked Nolan about her um, her radical centrism. She was um, uh, involved with several unions. Um, uh, one, one in particular during her work for the federal government, the United Federal Workers of America, which was a very left-wing union, uh, essentially a union influenced at that period by the Communist Party. And she was what we might you might think of her as being having been on the right wing of that union in the sense that she was a member of it, but a sort of dissenting member against the uh, um, against the sort of tendency that the U.S. Communist Party had to be involved in that uh, union, and also in the um, the uh, American. Um, the American Labor Party, excuse me, in New York City, which is a third, third party in New York in those years that was also uh, left sometimes sometimes sort of in, in all kinds of squabbles with the communist wing it had. And she was also sort of in the right wing of that left wing formation um, uh, as a dissenting member. But even her, the fact that she was involved in these organizations attracted the interest of, of Hoover's FBI and the State Department and the, and the internal security apparatus of the State Department during that moment and thought of her as a potential subversive. Plus, she was sort of, uh, I guess, apparently, and, and Nate maybe can say a bit more about this, she had some sort of um, funny particularities at work where she was a kind of an oddball and an eccentric and that in the years of the late 40s and early 50s that drew attention to her as somebody who might be not quite, uh, not quite, quote unquote, normal. Right. Yes. The uh, uh, both Robert Canigal and uh, Peter Lawrence, who, who have written uh, biographies of, of Jane Jacobs, talk about some of the, the really kind of hilarious people who, who came forward to speak um, against Jacobs to the FBI. And uh, most of them just thought she was peculiar for one reason or another. And that's why they thought she must be a communist. Right. But we like that interrogatory, the response to that interrogatory for the way that it really lays her out as a kind of um, – as a, as a sort of forgotten figure in this kind of spirit of American free thinking, right? This sort of spirit of American um, independence and 
and uh, the sort of cussed sort of uh, interest in speaking for oneself and not letting um, letting anyone uh, suggest to you how you should direct your your politics. I mean, I think it's quite telling that she stayed uh, members of this these unions uh, and political groups for years, despite the fact that she uh, disagreed with some of the politics or disagreed with the tendencies in the politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was her sort of. She thought that these groups, despite that she didn't agree with them, should be allowed to exist because they were not endangering American society. They were essentially a part of its health. And she traced this whole history back to in her family to various third parties, various left, various left-wing farmer and, and worker populist parties, where her grandfather and other people had been involved in these things and, and, and saw them as the ways that democracies renew themselves through these kinds of um, uh, unpopular third-party movements that perhaps don't have a lot of uh, don't score a lot of electoral successes, but but do um, reframe the debate in ways that the major parties then have to take into account and, and take on board in, in, in sort of modified ways. Mm-hmm. Which is appropriate today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I mean, at the very least, too, it's great for your, for your McCarthy-era bona fides to have been investigated. I want to come back to this idea of, because of, what stood out to me, too, in this is, is her sort of strong American identity, which I think is, is interesting in context of her later move to Canada. And, and you guys talk about her frustration with America and, and maybe her sort of disillusion with, disillusionment with, uh, with her American identity. What was that transition like for her? And, and, and what sort of new identity replaced that? Sure. So, you know, the, the third part of the book uh, starts, picks up just after Death in Life had been published and she'd sort of found this newfound fame in speaking about the book. Uh, but it starts at a time when a lot of the, the activism she was involved in in New York really started to actually go south. She's well known for uh, stopping the Lower Manhattan Expressway, uh, urban renewal in Greenwich Village. Uh, but she also was involved in a lot of fights that were kind of intractable. Um, the uh, Lomax got revived uh, twice after she defeated it. Um, she was also involved. And with- that was the Lower Manhattan Expressway. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, um, and she also was uh, involved with uh, the West Village Houses, which was a community-driven effort to, to uh, create uh, some infill development in, the, in Greenwich Village. Um, and it began as soon as the um, urban renewal efforts were sort of squashed in the village, but continued on until 1975, by which point she was already, she'd already left New York. Um, and really the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the Vietnam War. Uh, which she was involved with protesting along with uh, the rest of her family um, and actually marched on the Pentagon uh, with the um, in that, that famous march. And uh, sort of, she says she fell out of love with America when the, um, the soldiers there started marching on the protesters. Mm-hmm. And could you talk more about the West Village case? You know, I think pe- most people are familiar with her Vietnam activism in the, in the uh, Lower Manhattan Expressway. What was going on with the West Village? So essentially, they they had an alternative plan to the the urban renewal plan uh, that that had been set out for Greenwich Village, and it involved um, creating essentially mixed use infill development originally, uh, but the the plan got chipped away and chipped away uh, by a municipal government that was not responsive to the idea. The, I think the very idea at all of a community planning for itself and developing for itself. Um, and so in the end, uh, unfortunately, it didn't it, it came in far later than it was expected to. It didn't have the, the sort of nuanced design uh, that it originally was going to have. 
and um, economic or uh, financially even it, it didn't pan out very well. Um, but it, it, it did actually get done, and it is still there in the village. Uh-huh. And it did provide a lot of, uh, you know, well, not a lot, but a, a moderately moderate number of low, low to affordable um, housing yeah. in a neighborhood that was on its way already towards the gentrification that we associate with the West Village today. And it, it provided, a, a, you know, a a resource of, of of affordable housing or more affordable housing in a in um, that was state backed in some ways, and this is exactly what she hoped would happen: was that they that she could leverage the the uh, government, the municipal government, and some federal government funds that were going into affordable housing to do in a more sensitive and more responsible and more participatory way with the uh, neighborhood itself. So, and also, so while so while West Village houses was in some sense. Uh, reduced in circumstances over the 10 to 15 years that the the community and the neighborhood went back and forth over it. I think it needs to be understood as a, as a kind of success. One of one of several successes in New York in that in those years in turning the uh, low income housing or the or the urban renewal apparatus towards doing some marginal planning with people for their own neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been I've been indulging in my status sure. as a fanboy and, and neglecting my status as the host. Let's go back to the section two, uh, where you talk about her time writing for Architecture Forum uh, and her activism in New York, uh, in, in a kind of peculiar way. In the same way with uh, America, with a K at the end, um, her sort of you start to see the beginnings of a disillusionment with I think uh, sort of American ideals or American identity potentially. A similar thing happens at Architecture Forum. She goes in, she's on the urban renewal beat, she's on the modernist urban planning beat, uh, and the tone of her coverage slowly changes and she starts to become more skeptical of this programming. How does that happen? What does that look like? Right. So, I mean, essentially, she's, she starts out at Architectural Forum uh, on the hospital and school beat, uh, which is an interesting oh, okay. place to start. Um, and really does buy into, at that point, the sort of modernist approach to um, architecture in the sense that she was very invested in in function. Um, and so if you read a lot of those reviews, which we don't, we don't include in the book because they are very technical, um, they really deal with the organization of the building and, and how you know, the architect is saving money and um, all of these sort of very um, practical uh, interests, I guess, in the buildings. Um, and... So then uh, at a certain point, once, once urban renewal becomes um, a big part of, of building in America, uh, she is put on that beat and, and goes to a variety of different cities, uh, including Philadelphia, Baltimore, Cleveland, um, all over the place. Um, and the reviews of these, of these projects that she gives uh, at first are fairly positive. Um, they, they generally... Um, are favorable and and find lots to to talk about, but there is sort of below the surface uh, a little bit of skepticism, I think, even even there about certain issues. Um, and so she tells this story uh, about the moment when she really sort of turned on urban renewal or realized that something was was wrong. Uh, and it happened in Philadelphia, but a lot of uh, people who have looked into it aren't sure exactly when it happened, whether it was when she was reviewing. Uh, the, the urban renewal efforts in Philadelphia are sometime afterward. But in any case, um, she was getting a tour from Ed Bacon, who was the, the uh, chief planner. And he sort of showed her, uh, you know, an old city street 
um, which had, you know, not was not subject to urban renewal. Uh, and there were people out on the street and out on the stoop and looking out the window and kids playing on the street. Uh, but, you know, it was run down indeed. Um, and, and, you know, in, in an older style, you know, narrower streets, etc. And um, then he, he takes her to a new street and says, you know, this is what we're trying to do. And it's this beautiful modern vista. Uh, but she looks around and there are no people there. And so she asks Ed Bacon, well, that's all fine and good, but where are the people? And, uh, you know, he doesn't really have an answer for her and doesn't seem all that curious about why. Um, and th that's sort of the moment that she describes um, as, as when she realized that something was wrong with the way that, that we were rebuilding our cities. Mm -hmm. um, but the interesting thing to me is that she doesn't take modernists to task in the way that um, postmodern critics would later about issues like ornament or meaning or um, popular taste, she really takes modernists to task on their own terms. Uh, that is, she, she's talking primarily about the function of buildings within a city and whether architecture and, and planning is effectively actually, um, you know, as they say, uh, making form follow function. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think one of the things that we learned in looking at this at this time of her life, this period between, <clears throat> I'd say, uh, the the sort of early 1950s, 1954, 55, and 57, 58, it's a, sort of a three or four year period where she starts to really question her assumptions and question all the assumptions of the planning orthodoxy, is that that's the moment where she really starts to think about how um, not just uh, these can be transformed, but to think about how cities are are um, actually work, and that's her main subject from the, from there on forward into death and life, and not the other side into the rest of her life. Um, the question becomes um, how it is that cities works, and what it is that propels them. And this leads her back earlier into her life to where she had first come to New York and looked at the uh, interlocked economies of New York City in, in a series of profiles for Vogue magazine, some of which we feature in the, in the book, um, and, and also forward into the work that she did in Death and Life, and she comes up with the idea that a city is, a, is the product of what she calls organized complexity. And this is, the I think, the key to opening up all her writing that goes forward about, about city life, um, is this sense that, as Nate said, she's trying to find the, the ultimate and real function in the ways that cities are, are put together and the ways that the things that actually drive city life. Um, and she comes up with organized complexity as a kind of metaphor for, for, that, for that functioning. And that's what leads her into a set of questions about economies and about morals um, and politics down, down through her life. Mm -hmm. You mentioned... Uh... I think it's William Kirk and Ellen 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 Lurie at the uh, at the East Harlem project. Uh, mm -hmm. Who were they, and how did they impact Jane Jacobs? They were um, they were social workers. Um, William Kirk was uh, uh, and Ellen Lurie were both uh, people who worked at the um, Union Settlement House in in East Harlem, and they were involved in a whole host of. Um, attempts to try to figure out what was going on in, in, in that neighborhood in the 1950s and 60s. And they were originally, like Jacobs, quite um, supportive of the efforts to transform the housing conditions of East Harlem. So they welcomed 
uh, what was going on in East Harlem in the 50s, which was the building of a huge amount of public housing. And there was uh, public housing uh, being built there by the New York City Housing Authority, or NYCHA, um, in great numbers across the 1950s. And this was something that they had originally called for, better conditions and housing, um, to alleviate the conditions of the so-called slums and to try to alleviate the economic problem of so-called blight. And so they were um, supporters of that. And Jacobs uh, got to know Kirk over the years and um, was uh, started to visit East Harlem, one of the places she visited to try to understand what was going on in um, cities. And one thing that she learned, she learned two things, I think. Well, she learned a number of things, but two important things that we might highlight here. And Nate can maybe pick up on some others. But there's... Um, she started to look at the commercial infrastructure of a place like East Harlem, which had a very vibrant storefront uh, commercial life that was being thinned out by all the building of um, modernist tower in the park uh, housing developments, which came in and through process of slum clearance and rebuilding, uh, rebuilt these as uh, these uh, super block projects that, that took out a lot of the commercial infrastructure of the neighborhood. And those uh, private um Private businesses were not allowed back into the New York City Housing Authority uh, for, for reasons of uh, according to federal code, really. Um, and so she uh, began to uh, uh, see that that was affecting the community in lots of different ways. And she wrote a, a famous piece called The Missing Lincoln City Redevelopment that, um, that identified these, quote unquote, strips of chaos as a, as a sort of lost uh, city virtue, a lost uh, urban um, virtue that was that was being sort of winnowed out of cityscape. Another thing she did was she accompanied Ellen Lurie, who was actually a volunteer social worker who worked for William Kirk, who was the head social worker at Union Settlement, uh, as as Lurie went around in some of the new projects, particularly the Washington Houses, which went up between 99th and 104th Street. Um, and she did a helped her with a big, long survey. I saw the results of a big survey that Lurie did that really showed how how um, how hard it was for people to adapt to the new life of the of the of the housing projects, and this was took up a whole bunch of problems uh, and and debates during the 1950s about whether changes in, in the environment of, and housing affected people, and um, against uh, a lot of other academic literature that suggests that in some ways it doesn't that people just bring their class cultures and their their preoccupations into new housing environments. They they thought that it did and that it was transforming how people reacted to one another, particularly along the lines of race and class. Um, and this produced a famous, or well, it wasn't really famous, it was a report famous among social workers um, that's only recently been recovered by historians uh, who've, including myself, who've done work on East Harlem and on the life of Ellen Lurie, um, who, um, that suggested that this was a, was a, was a problem. And, and, and they engaged in a long effort to try to, to, to influence the New York City Housing Authority and other housing um, groups to try to re refine and rethink their, their development strategies and their design plans to bleed street life back into the into the the projects of East Harlem, uh, those that were coming forward and those that were had already been built. And Jacobs was a big part of this. She helped to, to consult on some of their their publications. She helped to hook them up with an architecture firm that that offered a redesign of a of a coming NYCHA project that was rejected for federal code reasons. Um, but and, and this is where she got a lot of her ideas about what it would be like to live in a city that had been entirely redone uh, by the forces of modernist planning, of urban renewal, of city rebuilding by, um, by, by the tower and the park method. Mm -hmm. I, I want to, so, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Nathan. Oh, no, go ahead. So, so one of the things that I actually really liked about the book a lot, the collection, uh, is a good chunk of it is actually spent on post-death uh, and life writings. 
and it's a lot of it is a pivot toward economic questions, uh, economic issues. Uh, she writes the death and life. Uh, she becomes, uh, you know, uh, somewhat famous within urban planning, and then she decides to start focusing on economics. What what motivated that pivot, uh, and what are some of the continuities between her her urban writing and her economics writing? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a direct continuation of the death and life of great American cities, um, as the title of the book suggests. What she was looking for was what makes cities tick and what makes them stop ticking. Um, and the conclusion that she came to um, after the after she had finished death and life was that a city can have all sorts of great people and great places, but if the economy tanks, that's the end. You can have everything else, but it doesn't matter if the economy is is not working. Um, and so that's what kind of led her uh, into this this direction of economics. Um, and she was really actually kind of reviving a prior interest. She had taken some courses in economic geography uh, when she was at uh, Columbia. Um, and so she was just kind of expanding upon her prior interests in some ways. Um, but yeah. Mm -hmm. This is where she starts to think about what are the drivers of economic life, right? And she's trying to think, how is it that this to go back to what I had said earlier about how is it that this economic, um, the economic forms of life that make a city tick, right? The the organized complexity. How can it be? Um, how can it be nurtured? How can it be activated? How can it can it be kept going? Because she was essentially thought that um, if you didn't have this sort of um, unplanned uh, uh, interchange of of, of people. Uh, producing new ideas and producing what she called new work um, and creating um, sort of fecund bouts of, of, of new production and new consumption and new imports and new exports from cities, that those cities that didn't have that were going to be um, inevitably uh, what she called stagnant. This was sort of her, the great problem for Jacobs was stagnancy in city life. And so these were the, these are the ideas that she began to work out in, in, econo um, in her two, her second two books, the, the economy of cities from 1969 and cities and the wealth of nations from, from 1984. Mm -hmm. Well, and two, I guess to, in keeping with the, the title of the book, there's a common theme of the importance of little plans of small planning, small planners with their own unique projects. One of the scenes that stands out to me, uh, from Death and Life is the, I think it's the, sh it's like a shoe market in Louisville, Kentucky, mm -hmm. uh, and just the long discussion about the shoe market. Uh, it's just one of those moments uh, that's uniquely, I think, Jacobs. She moves to Canada and she starts writing about Quebec. I don't know. I think most of my listeners are American, and so we probably have the characteristic total ignorance about foreign politics. What was going on with Quebec, and what did Jacobs have to say about it? Sure. So, uh, yeah, Quebec at that time, uh, there was a lot of activism, and in fact, you know, depending on on how you see it, and terrorism around um, Quebec separatism. Um, and so Jacobs intervened in that in that discussion pretty soon after she had arrived um, during uh, by, by giving a Massey lecture, which is a, a radio a famous radio lecture series about Quebec separatism. Um, and so she took sort of her ideas about cities and particularly the, the economy of cities um, and extended it to this question of sovereignty um, and whether or not having a, having a smaller state or, uh, that's more you know, connected to, to a, a primary city 
uh, would be beneficial or or make no difference, or you know would it, would the the trade differences outbalance the the benefits, etc. Um, so and then that that uh, lecture was turned into a book called uh, the question of separatism. Um, I think the interesting thing about about that whole series is that you really can't, to, in my opinion at least, you can't really look at uh, cities and the wealth of nations without understanding uh, her stance on Quebec. Um, a lot of the ideas that ended up in that uh, former book really come from uh, her, her thinking about Quebec, particularly um, questions of uh, national currencies. She was a big believer that, in fact, we'd all be better off if we had uh, more regional currencies rather than, you know, America having one big currency that applies to New York and Detroit and, uh, you know, the Appalachian area, like, equally, it would be much better if each area had its own that kind of responded to the needs of the, of the primary cities in each area, um, which is a pretty radical thought. Um, but but that's where it comes from, is this question of, of Quebec sovereignty. She thought that, that that would be one of the reasons that Quebec could be better off. Uh, and in fact, the, the original plan at the time to separate didn't include its own currency. So she she had a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess de sort of poli political decentralization becomes a big theme in some of her later work. Is it, would that be a correct interpretation? Yeah, uh, definitely. Not, not only at the state level, but then also, um, you know, when you're talking about cities. Um, in, in the 90s, there was a move to amalgamate uh, Toronto, where she was living at the time, with its surrounding suburbs. And she was part of the protest against that. Um, and it gives a pretty eloquent defense of it uh, in the second last part of the book. Uh, yeah, in the fourth part of the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to turn to um, systems of survival. Uh, I think this is, I think this is extremely underrated. Uh, the book is 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 kind of surprising just because it, it goes into completely new territory for Jacobs. I remember when I I read it. I think it was it's the character Ben who's a kind of token environmentalist. <laughs> um, but it, I was surprised that that he evolves into a kind of antagonist to uh, Kate's development. Uh, concurrently, though, as as your volume points out, Jacobs is working in areas that might matter to environmentalists, uh, energy efficiency, um, preserving local democracy. What's going on with Jacobs's political social thinking at this time? Right. So, I mean, in, in terms of the environmental aspect of it, she actually, she spoke at the first Earth Day um, alongside the event founder, Gaylord Nelson, and that speech is actually in the third part. So this is, that's before what the systems of survival in the section that you're talking about. But I think it's very pertinent um, because the way that she approaches environmentalism is so at odds with um, the way environmentalists were sort of thinking about it at the time. You know, for instance, she was very against the idea of population control, which was a, a popular idea at the time. Um, and, you know, argued strongly against that and particularly that it would it would not it would inevitably apply differently to people who had less power uh, in America, particularly, she points out, African-Americans, um, but, you know, presumably also um, people with less means. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that play out in, in China where it's, um, you know, the, the penalty is a, is a fee. So if you can pay it, hey. Um, but in any case, um, yeah, she, she's always been kind of an unconventional environmentalist, and yet... Um, you know, believed strongly in in um, 
in the need to, to address environmental issues. Uh, and to that end, she was part of a, a group called the uh, Energy Probe Research Foundation, um, which tried to address these issues, uh, but using using the market uh, particularly as as a means for doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I want to close the I want to close maybe with some of her 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 final works. Um, I hate to admit it, but I've never actually read Dark Age Ahead. It's the only main Jacobs book aside from the question of separatism that I haven't read. I've kind of been putting it off because I don't want to leave Jacobs as a pessimist. Um, but in your book, there's a section of... Uh, in your book, there's actually a bit on uh, on an unfinished work and, and sort of this idea of the age of plantation and the age of human capital. What was what was going through Jacobs's mind in the in the last 10 years of her writing? So this was an, it's an interesting thing, and I think perhaps for me, and, and maybe for Nate too, one of the more interesting things we discovered, which was, I think like, like you know, and we'd always sort of not known what to do with Dark Age Ahead. It was sort of um, very dour. Uh, it, mar it, it, it was definitely prescient in some ways. I mean, she in some ways predicted uh, the housing bubble in a certain kind of way. She's, she noticed that these kinds of things were, were bubbling under the surface and, and or maybe not long for the world. Um, she was thoughtful about some of the breakdowns in, in public morals, uh, bringing forward kind of her work on the, the guardians and the, and the, the, the traders and looking at how they uh, seem to have gotten mixed up with each other for um, in many too, too many ways as monstrous moral hybrids, right? She took that work forward into Dark Age Ahead, and it was a very pessimistic book, as you say. Um, at the same time, as we learned through the research for this, she was working out a whole other set of other ways of figure of, of thinking about uh, both human history and the and where things might be headed, and that the what is mostly left of that is this speech from uh, the City College of New York in 2004, the end of the plantation age. And so, what I really like about this is that it puts. Um, I'm not sure I entirely agree with it. I think it's sort of a funny history, uh, but it is a kind of fascinating and in in her in her way iconoclastic way to reframe all of human history um, under a certain kind of rubric. And this is what she calls the plantation age. She says, for thousands of years we've been laboring under this one organization of human labor and human um, human endeavor, and that's the plantation as the model, right? And so you can group under that industrial capitalism. You can group um, various uh, the sort of rise of agriculture culture, all of which are um, organized systems of planning um, that are used uh, sort of top-down forms of, um, of, uh, of visions of organizing people's labor for larger systems. And um, it's not surprising that she would identify it this way. It goes all the way back to her, her um, the ire she felt towards urban renewal. Um, and it's, a, it's sort of her take on um, how it is that uh, the world has been organized up until the, the 2000s. But what she says is that... Um, that perhaps this period is ending and perhaps we're headed into a new era. And instead of it being a dark age, hopefully, perhaps, um, it will be a new age of what she at one point called the age of human capital. Um, and that uh, had some interesting possibilities. And these were left very undone in her ideas. But, um, Nate, you had some really good ideas about the way this might work or the way this, this works. So I think I'm going to hand off to you on this part. Sure, sure yeah. So, I mean, the, I think the key the key aspect of this this age or, or the, the clue that, that sort of um, suggested to her that we might be coming into new age is, is the small um, percentage of, of our population that's actually involved in food production, um, which is, com you know, compared to past times is completely different. Um, 
And she she cites uh, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel as sort of the inspiration for this idea in that he, he sort of argues that agriculture was the defining factor for uh, why some cultures succeeded and others didn't in warfare. Um, and she sort of says that the factors have changed now because the game of food production has changed. Uh, and now the new cultural winners, as she says, uh, will be those who um, are able to sort of understand uh, how cities work and how they enable human capital to, um, you know, essentially create prosperity, innovation, and power effectively. She wasn't, this wasn't necessarily a utopia, what she was saying. It was just potentially a, a, a new age. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a great selection. I'd like to close by asking each of you, what was your favorite piece in the collection? I think mine was actually the end of the plantation age because it suggested to me, uh, this is Sandy, that, um, that it suggested to me that she was thinking in a way that, um, that took in the big, uh, the big questions of the, the transformation of, of, of human life over a long period of time. And as a historian, one of the things that has sort of bothered me about Jacobs, um, as much as I have been inspired by her writing and as, as an urbanist and thinking about cities, is that I think she neglects to, um, to think hard enough about how um, the things that she would call a monstrous moral hybrid, the public and private um, combinations, are actually have been at the heart of the building of economies and cities and uh, all kinds of uh, all kinds of um, of human endeavor for uh, for most of the industrial age and for her this is uh, this is a sort of problem but she does she identifies this problem too often a historically um, and so um, and, and that I think limits sometimes her uh, ability to actually understand how it is that cities have actually worked, as opposed to how she would like to have seen them worked in her having worked in her uh, vision of this this sort of vision of markets without capitalism, which I admire in a certain way, but I think is not entirely um, not entirely prescient. But this this new vision, this vision she's just preparing at the end of her life, says. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna double down and say that actually I have a larger vision about how the world has transformed, um, and that that really uh, we're not thinking big enough. We need to think about the the plantation as a model for for all of human history over the last I don't know several thousand years. And she never got to quite work it out as you know to really periodize it the way a historian might like to see. Um, but it was enormously intriguing, and it would have been fascinating to see where she would have gone with that. And uh, my favorite, I think, will ha would have to be her speech at the first Earth Day, um, mostly because it was it was just amazing to find out that she actually was involved with Earth Day, but also because I still think it is very present uh, about both the environmental challenges that we face, but also um, the way that it intertwines with issues like income inequality um, and you know lack of social mobility. Uh, and general uh, economic stagnance, uh, uh, as she always points out. Um, so that, that sort of intertwining dynamic, I think, is, is really fascinating and um, provides almost either a complement or a counterpoint to um, writers like Naomi Klein, for instance, who are, who are looking at these issues. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a rich volume. Uh, each section adds depth to the mind of Jane Jacobs. The book is uh, Vital Little Plans, the short works of Jane Jacobs. My guests today have been Samuel Zip and Nathan Storing. Sandy, Nate, thanks for joining the Market Urbanism Podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us.